Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Rucker. He's one of the preeminent researchers on the Shroud, and we'll be talking about a handful of topics and look forward to the discussion. But before we get started, I wanted to tell a short story, and it reminds me of the time when the women approached the empty tomb. And for them, that was a moment of, uh, of true bewilderment. How could that stone have been rolled away and then the tomb was empty? For Christians, though, that is probably the most joyous moment when we think back. That is really the proof that our Savior was, uh, was risen. So when I think of the empty tomb, it's also of other joyous moments, and certainly the birth of my children and the birth of our, you know, my son and daughters, and just imagining, you know, what that must have been like. And now as a Christian, also understanding what that was like. Now for the, for the women, though, uh, at the tomb at that time, it was definitely one of confusion. Where was he? Where was the body? And in Luke, the women see two men in gleaming white robes, and when they return, when the women return with Peter, he sees the linen cloth lying in the empty tomb. There, there it is, right there. And he too, of course, is confused as to what happened. But it is that moment, and that is what all the fuss is about when, it, when we talk about the Shroud of Turin. So with that, let me introduce Robert Rucker. He earned his MS degree in nuclear engineering from the University of Michigan and worked for 38 years in the nuclear industry doing nuclear re reactor design, criticality safety for nuclear fuel production, and non-destructive testing or assay of fissile material in containers. He's published 41 documents with U.S. government agencies. He's been researching the Shroud of Turin since 2013, including application of nuclear analysis computer calculations to solve the carbon dating problem of the Shroud. Extensive information on the Shroud can be found on his website, which is www.shroudresearch.net, www.shroudresearch.net. And there he has 32 papers that are on uh, representing his research. And uh, some of them are very fascinating and we're gonna talk about a few today. So Bob, thank you again for being here. So glad to have you. So let's get started. Yes, glad to be here. So fantastic. So uh, Bob, why don't you do this and tell me, tell us about the genesis of your, uh, of your backstory and how you got involved with the Shroud. Oh, oh sure. Uh, I was delivering newspapers as, as a kid and uh, on, this, on every Sunday they had a, had a magazine uh, in the Sunday edition called Parade. And I was just flipping through Parade magazine and I saw a, a little picture, maybe just an inch high. Uh, and um, there was a few sentences next to it. And the last sentence was, uh, many people believe that this was the burial shroud of Jesus. And at the time I thought that can't be because that'd be so well known. Everyone would have heard of that. And I had never heard of it before. Uh, and so I, I kind of just decided to disregard it at that point. But then, I don't know, a few months later, I, I thought, well, if I get further information on it, I should, I don't want to be so biased as, as to not consider it. I should at least consider it reasonably. Uh, and so then, you know, as I would be going to a Christian bookstore, for example, <clears throat> I, I might find a book on the Shroud and whenever I did, I'd buy it. And I, I bought a, a small book called uh, uh, It Is the Lord. I uh, read that one, maybe 70 pages. And then I, uh, I found uh, Gary Habermas's book uh, on the Shroud coming out, uh, uh, what, about 1980 or so, and, and read that. And, uh, but uh, then in 1988, they did the carbon dating. Uh, 1989, it came out in the journal Nature, and I didn't read it for two or three years, but finally did read it. And when, uh, when I did read it, I, I thought, well, this can't be. be, because in 1978, they'd done such good research that, that they had proven that the image is not due to a pigment, it's not due to a scorch, it's, it's uh, not due to any liquid, and it's not due to photography. 
So that rules out everything that we normally think of in, in making an image, uh, except for possibly radiation. Because when you take a picture with a camera, what you're doing is you're collecting uh, reflecting, reflected photons from the item that you're taking a picture of, and that's radiation. Uh, and, and so, but they really didn't test for radiation in 1978. But uh, then as I was sitting in the library reading that uh, paper on the carbon-14 dating, and they had dated it to the range of uh, 1260 to 1390, I, I said, this cannot be, there has to be something wrong with this. Because it occurred to me that, that the nails going through the wrist rather than the palms, uh, and the fact that the thumbs were turned over and were not visible, both those aspects were contradictory to the uh, images uh, of the shroud in paintings in the Middle Ages. So that could not be from 1260 to 1390, had to be from much earlier. And so at that point, I, I realized that what's really needed to solve this carbon dating problem is a person that knows how to run nuclear analysis computer calculations. And that was me. Uh, I didn't know of anyone else that could run nuclear analysis computer calculations and was interested in the Shroud of Turin. So it kind of fell to me at that point. And, but there were uh, a lot of impediments. I didn't have a computer on my desk fast enough. And the computer codes at that point really weren't suitable to solve the problem. So it took many years, maybe 15 years, just waiting for, for some of those problems to re be resolved. Uh, and then finally, when I had a time, uh, uh, the right computer code and a computer fast enough. Uh, then I gave Mark Antonacci a call on the phone and discussed it with him and uh, everything followed from there. <laughs> that's a fascinating story, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And uh, yet it's funny because uh, I remember kind of just reading something uh, about the 1978 uh, investigation that the, the STIRP team did and then, uh, and I, I, I don't know, I didn't really think about it too much. I was uh, probably too busy in college or something like that. And then, uh, and then in 1988, I kind of heard something. It says, oh yeah, there's this radiocarbon dating. The Shroud of Turin is really just, uh, you know, a, a, not authentic at all. And, and then I kind of forgot about it for a long time. And, and then my brother sent me a book uh, and it was the Ian Wilson book called The Blood in the Shroud. And I started reading that. and. I was, I was absolutely fascinated. And actually, as I, uh, as I was telling you before, that book is really the basis of my book and I, where I took it and I said, you know, that book is, it's so hard to read for, a, for somebody that's really just not fascinated in facts like that. It's so hard to read. And that's then was the basis for my book as the historical uh, fiction on the Shroud. Yeah. But anyway, then, uh, so with all of that, what do you think is the, uh, how the image, uh, what do you believe is how the image was made? Oh, oh yes. Um, and I'm just writing up another paper here. Uh, <laughs> that's what I do in my time uh, uh, for a conference that's going on in St. Louis in June. Uh, and uh, I'm going through all the different hypotheses for image formation, carbon dating, and how the blood that would have dried on the body, why it's now on the shroud. Uh, and so there's four basic concepts uh, that are put forward. You know, once you come to the realization, based upon the first 80 years of research on the shroud, that there really was a human being, a dead body of a human being that was wrapped in the shroud, and that in some unknown way, that that body made an image on the shroud. So once you come to that realization, uh, that you then have four different options that have been put forward to explain how the image was, was formed. Uh, and for example, uh, Giulio Fonte has the uh, corona uh, discharge uh, concept. And I, I think there probably was a corona discharge, though uh, I, I wouldn't explain it in the way that he did. And then Paula de Lazaro, had, had a, a burst of uh, ultraviolet light concept. And I think there may have been ultraviolet light. I can't disprove it, but I think there was more to it than that. Uh, and then the, the third option is a concept where the uh, body is assumed to disappear based upon scripture. Uh, and so then the, the uh, cloth collapses, both 
the upper cloth comes down and probably the bottom cloth comes up uh, so that they then go into the what's called the radiant region where the body had been which now contains radiation so that it's still a radiation concept but the cloth then encounters radiation which discolors uh, the fibers to form the image uh, and uh, my my concept is it is similar in some respects and different in some respects it's more complex because the evidence on the shroud is complex so you wouldn't be shouldn't be surprised that the explanation uh, is also complex uh, and so it's very important to approach it in the right way the whole question of how did the image form a lot of people start off with an assumption of naturalism and that's almost a, a, a death stroke right there. If, if you're going to try and figure out how the image was formed, you can't assume that the only explanations that are allowed are those that are consistent with our current understanding of physics. Now, you know, that's very prideful in my thinking because the history of science is continually discovering new things. So we can't, we can't limit ourselves. And just the history of trying to explain the image on the shroud by uh, our current concepts of physics has failed. So mm -hmm. let's be open-minded and push the boundaries out and, and search for other options. So once you come to the realization that there was a human body and that was dead based upon the rigor mortis in, in, in the image, a dead human body, uh, produced in some way produced an image that, that was on the shroud. Well, <clears throat> to form the image, you need three things. You need a, a discoloration mechanism. That is to discolor the fibers that make up the image. Secondly, you need energy to drive the discoloration mechanism. That's just kind of normal physics. Uh, but thirdly, what most people don't realize it, is that you need information to control the discoloration mechanism. That is, to, to control which fibers need to be discolored and the length of that discoloration of each fiber uh, in, in order to form uh, the image because it's the discoloration of the fibers that form the image. So you need information. So then the question is, that information has to be transported to the shroud, but where did it come from? And a lot of people would say, well, well, there was a, an earthquake or lightning strike near the tomb. And, and so that caused radiation to come from the limestone to hit the shroud. But the problem with that uh, is that the information that defines the image of a crucified man was not in the limestone. And the people that were doing the burial, for example, if they looked at the limestone, they would not have seen a, a crucified dead body. Well, where would they have seen a crucified dead body? Where would they have to look? They'd have to look at the body to see it because when they see it, they're receiving reflected photons that are transporting the information that defines the body, the color, shades, and, and locations, uh, and transports that information to their eyes so that they could see it. So that's where the information resided, was inherent there in the body. So they, therefore you can, you can uh, conclude that the information that was in the body that defined the, the uh, form of a crucified man had to be transported uh, to the cloth. And there's only a certain number of ways that information can be transported from one location to another. For example, uh, uh, on, on your phone, it's transported by electrons flowing uh, in electrical wiring. But there was no wiring connecting the body with the cloth. Uh, another way uh, is to um, uh, transport the information using sound waves. Uh, but sound, if, if I'm talking to one person in, in one direction, another person way over in the other direction will hear it as well. The sound inherently spreads out because it's being spread by a random process of bouncing one atom against another. So that a random process could not form the good 
uh, resolution image that we have on the front and the back of the cloth. So you can exclude all options except for one, and that is radiation, because uh, both particles such as protons, neutrons, or electrons, or photons of light. A photon is the smallest packet of energy of electromagnetic radiation, which is, for example, light. Uh, that both of those particles and photons travel in straight lines in the direction it's in which they are emitted so that they can communicate focused information that's being carried from the body to the cloth so that what we have is some is a mechanism to transport that information from the body to the cloth and that mechanism has to be radiation that's the only option that works right yeah, so no, we get I, in then from the other direction, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like a maze that you're trying to solve. And, and you know, where a maze is, is like a puzzle on a piece of paper where you have an entrance and an exit. And you're trying to draw a line from the entrance to the exit across all these walls and everything. But if you have a complex maze, the best way to do it is to try and solve it from both directions. You start your line, you drive it, draw it from the entrance and you draw it from the uh, exit and you try and get get to match in the middle well that's what i that's what i go through in trying to uh, develop um, the process for image formation so now what i've just given you is starting from the beginning point uh how how was how was the information transferred from the body to the cloth there is also the question starting from the other perspective of what could have uh, discolored the fibers and uh, two options occur to me that are most likely. You have an external cause and an internal cause, external to the fiber and internal to the fiber. The external cause w would be uh, ozone or other reactive uh, gaseous products that could be formed by um, uh, a, a spark or, or a coronavirus, uh, uh, for example. Um, a yeah, static, like static discharge yeah. uh, is the word I was, I was searching for there. Uh, a good example of a static discharge is a corona discharge. Right. Uh, where, where it's just the, the electrical current is transported on ions in, uh, in the air. Um, so, uh, and the, the other option, that, that's the external. The internal option is where you have heating just on the outer circumference of the fiber because that's where the discoloration is yep. you have to be able to explain it uh, and and so in my uh, physics class at university of michigan uh, we learned a very interesting fact that uh, in a conductor an alternating current uh, travels on the circumference of the conductor uh, just simply due to uh, electromagnetic effects from the alternating current of, of the uh, yep. electrons going in one direction, then in the opposite direction. I remember. So I remember, remember that, that exactly. I, yeah. I, yes. Well, because mo thing. most most people don't know that. Hmm. But uh, so there, therefore, what what would cause the the uh, an uh, high frequency alternating current in the fibers? Uh, well, it, it 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 could be a static discharge. Uh, for example, when you have a, a thundercloud uh, going over lightning rods and, and the lightning comes down from the cloud, it actually goes back and forth maybe up to 20 times. Uh, and, and that's an alternating current. So that if, if we had uh, an alternating uh, current coming from the body, that, that is uh, charged particles uh, going upward and downward. And that's why the, the images are the same on the front image and the back image, I think, because th this, this process in, involved an alternating effect, both upward to form the front image and downward to form the uh, back image or, or dorsal image. But uh, th th that would be charged particles that would then be deposited on the, the cloth that would initiate a static discharge or corona discharge from right. the top fibers 
that were closest to the body. And that's why the discoloration in the thread is on the top fibers uh, that were facing the body. So that this concept explains all the problems uh, that we have that result from the evidence that, that largely came from the 1978 STIRP examination over a five-day period on the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, so and, um, I, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, the uh, I, and I was going to ask you about the the alternating current because I was wondering if it was a like a a direct current which would not be alternating, then that might have led to a slightly different discoloration on one side versus the other side, whereas the alternating current then makes it so that it would be equal. So that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, yes. See, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to solve these mysteries by following the evidence where it leads. And that, I think that's what you have to do, rather yeah. than just starting off with some kind of assumption, because you don't want your scientific conclusions based upon just your assumption. You want it based upon the evidence. Well, so, and there's certainly uh, um, new, I don't know if you'd call it new science, but um, a lot of unknowns. And one of the things that I liked about STIRP was that it, uh, it it basically said it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It started to rule out a bunch of things. And yet to your earlier point, well, there's there's a whole bunch of things that we don't even understand yet. And so then, you know, as we, you kind of start to get that envelope of, of uh, knowledge smaller and smaller as you, you know, as you say, okay, well, we've got this, this alternating current, it's going, you know, vertically collimated up and down and things like that. I think it really, it's starting to get, you know, it's that, that envelope of uncertainty seems to be getting smaller. But it's a good explanation because it's so consistent with the evidence. Mm. So, so, that, so that this alternating effect of, of the particles being emitted from within the body going up, for example, if you had protons going up and, you, and if there was an electric field, then the electrons would go down, but then it would flip. Then flip again and flip again. Yep. So that, that's an alternating effect that would be that would set up uh, an alternating current in the fibers, w which then deposits its energy just on the outer two percent, for example, two percent of the radius of the fibers, exactly where the discoloration is. Yep. 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 So yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. No, it really does, and um, and I think then you know, so it's kind of like the. The body is there and it, there's these i guess you know the, the coronal discharges i guess from the skin uh you know into the into the material and then that's an alternating current both on the front and on the back as well and uh, and that makes a that makes a lot of sense and I, I also remember in one of your papers that then that also explains the distance because then the strength of that signal the further you are away this the further the skin is away from the surface of the, the shroud, then the weaker that signal will be, and therefore the the lighter that'll be. And it, it, uh, uh, yeah, so it it explains why there's uh, the the uh, light and dark areas are reversed, uh, as though it's a negative. It mm. also it also explains why there's three dimensional information uh, on the shroud, um, and and when we start talking, that was the the. Um, very important discovery in 1975 by John Jackson, a professor of physics at the Air Force Academy. Uh, and that discovery then led to STIRP. Right. Uh, because right. As he talked about it with other co-workers, they just became extremely interested in trying to solve this puzzle. How in the world can there be three-dimensional information on the Shroud of Turin when that's never the case with any painting or photograph? Uh, and so, but in this explanation, it's fairly simple uh, with the charged particles being emitted vertically from the body, uh, the intensity of those, that, that is the number of particles per square centimeter, for example, uh, would be a, a decreasing due to scattering and absorption in the air. And, and for particles, it could be decay as well. Mm. So, so that the greater the distance between the body and the cloth, the, the greater the distance that that radiation would have to go through the air, and so the greater it would be diminished, uh, so that that would be the signal that would be deposited on the cloth. 
uh, and that's really what you want to to get get at because the nature of the 3d information uh, is exactly that it it, it uh, is the uh, related to the distance between the body and the cloth so that that's why everything makes sense here that there was something that was traveling vertically from the body to the cloth uh, and i say vertically for, there's multiple reasons to this but probably the simplest explanation of that is that when you just look at the front image it's it's a vertical projection from the body right and when you look at the back image it's a vertical projection from the body now the front Im image is vertical projection up the back image is a vertical projection down so therefore the the mechanism that was operating here is best explained uh, as being vertically oriented both up and down yeah so absolutely. That's, that's why i think the evidence really does force you uh, into believing uh, that the particles that were being emitted in the body were to form the image were charged particles uh, and that they were traveling vertically now there's been some confusion some people think that I'm saying that neutrons form the image, and I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, the right. neutrons being having no charge are right. so are so penetrating that they would go right through the clock, you know, 99.9% .9 of them would go right through the clock, across the air gap, into the limestone. They go a foot or two into the limestone, and hmm. there they would just bounce around because they're not influenced by the uh, electrostatic forces from the electrons. They have to bounce off the nuclei themselves. And according to my calculations, they would bounce on the average about 150 times off of other nuclei. And thus they take on a characteristic cosine shape in the shroud, which produces a cosine shape of carbon date on the shroud. So it explains, yeah. and that's consistent with the three laboratory uh, results from the three laboratories that did the carbon dating on the show. Yeah. Well, and I found uh, uh, to move on to that, um, the uh, you know to your point there about the uh, the carbon dating and the the challenges of trying to make heads or tails of of what came out of that when you have all this other evidence of uh, uh, you know of, of it really having come from the turn of the millennial the middle millennium. And yet their carbon dating comes out at 1260 to 1390. And uh, so tell us, tell us what you're, uh, what, tell us about that. And I know in one of your papers, well, and I guess in a couple of your papers, you talk about the effect that the neutrons may have had uh, that are coming out of the, 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 the transmission of the body or whatever that had uh, the effect in turn in, into potentially changing the the radiocarbon dating and the the impact that it had on the on the radiocarbon dating. Uh, yes, on, on my website shroudresearch.net, I've written 12 papers on carbon dating, <laughs> uh, and you know, part of this is the development of my own thinking. Uh, you know, as you're writing papers, you, it, it's good to write papers because you're sorting things out and you're answering questions that people raise in what you've written. Uh, and, and so these 12 papers uh, not only are written for slightly different purposes, but also just to, to uh, illustrate the development of my own thinking. So that uh, uh, I actually have three of those 12 papers. Uh, I, I've written one is only two pages long. That's for the very, you know, one, one person who wants to do it quick and dirty. Th then I've written one I think is about 12 pages. For, for the person who's technically qualified. Uh, and then I, the next one up is, I think it's 38 pages for, for the non, for the layman, the non-specialist. But I've tried to write it in, in a way that he could understand it. Mm. And that's why it takes longer. You have to put in more illustrations and define your terms, uh, et cetera. Yep. But, yep. but yes, there, the uh, bottom corner uh, off of his foot, uh, at the corner, uh, was cut in 1989 to remove samples. It was actually four samples, but they were sent to three different laboratories. Uh, it was actually an extra sample cut, a fourth sample cut to, to make them all about the same weight. Uh, and, and those were sent to laboratories in uh, Tucson, uh, Oxford, and uh, Zurich, I think. 
Zurich, Zurich, Switzerland, yes. Zurich is always in the middle. <laughs> yes, there you go. Uh, well, so they're the it, uh, the independent. Uh, they're, they're, independent. They're, they're the independent ones. Yes, they're they're always in the middle. They're not, not yep. going to be extreme on either end. Anyway, um, <laughs> a little joke. That was a little joke. But anyway, they arrived at dates that were not consistent with each other, which is interesting. Uh, now, let me back up a little bit. Uh, the t dating was done in 1988. In 1989, it came out in Nature. And the conclusion, the one sentence that the media picked up on that was in the abstract and in the conclusion was that uh, uh, this proves that the Shroud of Turin cannot be the authentic burial cloth of Jesus. The only thing is that uh, there were, I think it was five different Freedom of Information Acts that were issued in order to finally get the data yep. that would, that they, measurement data that they took and that data was finally obtained in 2017 why in the world would it take the uh, the british museum from 1988 to 2017 to release the data it's almost like they were hiding something yep well i think they were the, uh, the, the as far as i i only know of one reviewer of that paper before it was it was published and one of his comments was interesting that the statement, this proves that the Shroud of Turin is not the authentic burial cloth of Jesus. He said, you have to remove that. Well, why, why would he say that? It, it was because the statistical analysis did not prove what they were saying. And yeah, believe me... it or not, that is often the case yeah, in, in technical uh, articles. Uh, it's, it's just very interesting and very discouraging because the carbon dating and really depressed research on the shroud, we'd be much further along today uh, if they had followed the reviewer's recommendation to re remove that statement, because that statement was not proven by the statistical analysis in the paper. But most people wouldn't realize that. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, uh, I was for about four or five years at General Atomics in San Diego. I was in charge of a small group doing statistical analysis on measurements. So I'm very familiar with the problems in measurements and the problems in doing statistical analysis uh, of the me measurements. And every measurement has two types of errors. Uh, there is what's called random errors that, that uh, where a measurement can be a little bit high one time and a little bit low the next time. And that, that error between the true value and the measured value can be high or low, it's random. So all you have to do to kind of minimize that effect is take many different measurements. So, so the, and that's what's done normally. You take many different measurements in order to reduce the effect of the random error. But the second type of error is called a systematic error. Uh, and most people are not familiar with this. Uh, so the systematic error is not random, it doesn't, you know, be larger or smaller randomly. No, it's always in one direction. It's always larger or always smaller. And it's being caused by something. Uh, and so uh, in order to make the conclusion in their paper that the statistical analysis proves that the Shroud of Turin uh, is not authentic, what they would have to do is to prove uh, that there was no systematic error in their measurements they didn't do that they simply assumed it away by assuming that the uh, measurements the measured data uh, had a uh, a larger error than what they wanted so they just assumed the effect went never did prove it so that it was never legitimate but it's had a tremendous effect on depressing assured research. But if you just take the three values from the three laboratories and average them, you get 1260 AD. And the uncertainty on that, the one sigma uncertainty is 31 years. Now, when I say one sigma, what that means is that there's about 68% probability that the true value uh, is, is within 31 years of 1260. And that would be true 
if there was no systematic error involved. Right. So they took they took that 1260 plus or minus 31 and then corrected it for the changing carbon 14 concentration in the atmosphere. And when they did that, they came up with a range of 1260 to 1390. Now they they're stating that using uh, 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 a range of two sigma, which means that 95% probability of having the true value within that range of 1260 to 1390. But that's not true if the 1260 value is not right. And it can't be claimed to be right because they didn't prove that there was no systematic error. See, so that, that's how the logic goes. Yeah, and I, uh, just to interrupt you there a second, uh, when I was getting my engineering degree, uh, we did a little bit of uh, what you're talking about, where you, you measure things and you measure them five times, you measure them 10 times, and you take the average of that. And then, you know, all of this statistics started coming in and I then I told myself, man, I hate statistics. <laughs> and then, uh, and th th what's funny about that though, is in the business that I'm in now, that's all I do is statistics. <laughs> so yeah, it yes, came around to beat me, but you know that what you're what you're talking about, and I'll let you continue there because I think uh, that science of statistics on those three samples and on how they were measured, and then the errors that were um, either systematic or random errors are, are are just fascinating. So I'll let you keep going there. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, what that what that proves. Uh, is that there, there was a systematic error, sometimes called a systematic bias, in the measurements, all of the measurements. Uh, now, there's two types of systematic errors. You can have it in the measurements, or you can have it in the item being measured. You know, the item being measured is, this, is, is the samples that cut from the shrub. But, let, but when you consider the measurements themselves, what is being measured? What's the ratio of the carbon 14 to carbon 12 uh, in, in the linen? And, and uh, let's see. Um, well, it's the ratio of that and then the distance from the, uh, maybe that's where you're going, the distance from uh, the rest of the body and, and that it was a linear distance between each of those measurements of the three samples. Yes, yes. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there. I have so many different thoughts going through my mind, and maybe I'm getting older, I suppose. But uh, in, anyway, uh, yes. Oh, yes. There was a systematic error in the results of their measurements. That's a good way to say it. But they didn't only measure the Shroud of Turin in their analysis. They also measured what are called standards. Now, in this case, standards would be pieces of cloth of, of which they knew the, the dates for the pieces of cloth based upon history. So they also measured these these three pieces of uh, uh, old cloth. Uh, and when they did those measurements, of course, they measured the carbon 14 to carbon 12 ratios. They, they obtained dates that agreed fairly well with the historical dates. So that proves that they were measuring the carbon 14 to carbon 12 ratios correctly. So when we apply that to the Shroud of Turin, remember there were two possibilities for the systematic error. It, it could be something wrong with the measurements or with the samples. Well, we've just shown that it's not anything related to the measurements. So therefore it's something related to the samples. In other words, the samples have been modified in some way. Now, uh, Joe Marino, who promotes the invisible reweave concept and has been doing so for many years, uh, of course, uh, what, what he says is that uh, the area where they took the, the carbon dating samples in 1988 uh, was rewoven using French reweaving technology so that it would be basically be uh, invisible, at, at least to the unaided eye. Uh, but um, I'm having a brain freeze again. Yeah, no, that's okay. Well, you know, you bring that up, and uh, Joe Marino uh, on the uh, the invis invisible French weave. That's actually the 
the hypothesis that I took in my book is that it was, uh, you know, new material with cotton uh, that was rewoven, cotton and linen that was rewoven into the original linen to increase the strength or re it kind of repair that corner because that was the corner where the bishops and the and the the people that were displaying were holding it and it was starting to fray and come apart so they used that that french reweave uh, invisible weaving methodology to uh, to get around that yeah yes well i let's see if i can pick up where i left off here uh so so that uh Joe Marino's concept of uh, invisible reweave can explain two of the four things that we know to be true about the Shroud of Turin, uh, the carbon dating in the Shroud of Turin. We know four things to be true, at least I believe we do. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> at the 1988 sample location, the uncorrected uh, carbon date was 1260, plus or minus 31. That's number one. Number two is we know the slope to that value based upon the three values that, that the carbon dating laboratories measured. And if you just plot those as a function of the distance from the uh, bottom of the cloth, what you obtain is about is a slope or gradient of about 36 years per centimeter, which is about 91 years per inch. In other words, at that rate, if you extrapolate it, if you move the sample point by 10 inches, then the carbon date would change by 910 years. So it would change from 1260 to a value to the future, which is interesting. Yes. Uh, we, we, so that what that's saying is that the slope can be very significant. So we know that the date, we know the slope, and Joe Marino's concept can explain both those. Uh, he explains the date by, by the newer material from about 1520, he thinks, uh, mixed in with material from 33 AD. And you get, when you carbon date this mixture, you get a date of about 1260. Okay, that's reasonable so far. Uh, and, and then uh, if, if the newer material compared to the old material has a slope to it, that is that as you progress up from the bottom of the cloth, you have a different ratio of new to old material, it can explain this slope in the carbon dating of, of about uh, 36 years per centimeter. But the problem is that his concept doesn't explain the other two things uh, that uh, should be true. Uh, and that is that uh, the three samples that were sent uh, to the laboratories, actually four samples that were sent, uh, were subsampled, at least three of them were. The fourth uh, sample that was sent to Turin uh, was simply put into the vault. It wasn't subsample. Yeah. Uh, so that you ended up, I think it was 16 values that you ended up with. Uh, so that the, the the explanation for the carbon dating has to be consistent with those 16 subsample dates, uh, as well as the average of 1260 and the slope of 36 years per centimeter. And the problem is that the concept of an invisible reweave would not be consistent with that be, be, uh, because the range was something like uh, what 1200 up to 1400 something like that uh, so that uh, in many of the subsamples because the subsampling would be done randomly right you should be obtaining dates that are consistent with his new material hypothesis of about 1520 but none of the subsamples are dated to that and some of the subsamples should be dated at or close to the old material date of 33 AD, yet none of them are. So to me, that's a killer. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that you're, if you're hypothesizing an invisible reweave of the shroud, that doesn't explain the date for the sudarium because they're different pieces of cloth. So the, the carbon date just based on historical grounds, we believe that the Sudarium of Oviedo, located in Oviedo, Spain, Sudarium is the Greek word for face cloth, basically. The Sudarium of Oviedo was carbon dated to about 700 AD, whereas historical documents, I think, indicated it left Jerusalem about uh, 625 AD, somewhere in that range. Right. So that there's a conflict. So that 
The invisible reweave concept doesn't explain the range of the subsample dates or the date for the sudarium, whereas my concept is consistent with all four. Yeah. Then that makes the difference. What do you, which do you want to believe? Yeah. Uh, hypothesis yeah. is consistent with only two, uh, two out of four or four out of four. Well, to yeah. me, the answer is clear. No, I like that. That's uh, very interesting. And, uh, you know, and I also like the, uh, you know, the statistical side of it. And then to your point about the random errors versus the, sy the systematic errors. And I also liked your point about um, it's possible that if you then keep going up inch by inch all the way up to the center of the shroud, if that, uh, if that linear uh, systematic error continues, it's possible that the, the radiocarbon dating would date the parts of the shroud to the future. To some oh, yes, my computer calculations indicate that the, about 90% of the Shroud of Turin should date to the future. <laughs> now, pe people think that's very strange, but all I'm doing is applying the normal equations for calculating right. the uh, and, and when you have more carbon, a higher carbon 14 to carbon 12 ratio than in the environment, then you get a date to the future. That, that's all. That's all we mean. But yeah. it just, it, what it says is that there's something very strange going on. Now, my nuclear analysis, computer calculations, don't just extrapolate those three experimental values. It calculates the entire curve. Uh, and it, I have to normalize the curve to some value, and I normalize it to the 1260 average. But when I do that, uh, it's in, interesting that the... Uh, nuclear analysis computer calculations uh, that I did with a computer code called MCNP, Monte Carlo N particle, uh, calculated the slope to be about 36 years per centimeter in good agreement with the measurements. Uh, but the calculation uh, was not just an extrapolation of, of from that area of the shroud, but it actually did the entire curve and it curves over into a cosine shape so that mm. above above the center of the body mass, I should say below the center of the body mass on the dorsal image. Now, you're not going to get a piece of that fabric to date it, but if you could, right. Right. the calculation indicates you get a date of about 8,500 uh, AD, well into the future, so, so that the calculation it indicates about 90% of the cloth would date to the future. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I as I was reading your paper on that, um, and you were talking about the linear, I, and I wrote a note down, I said, well, if that's true, then the center of the, of the shroud is gonna be somewhere in the future, and in the next paragraph, there you were. And I said, all right. Yes. <laughs> so I guess the good news was is that I understood it, but uh, the bad yes. news was that I understood it, I guess. <laughs> yes, well, it's interesting that when I first did these calculations, uh, I was pleased, you know, I was normalizing to the date, so that had to be correct. Mm. But I was pleased that it also obtained the correct slope and the correct range. But I hadn't thought about the sudarium. But when I did, you know, it occurred to me that, well, the, the, the sidereum is related to the shroud based upon the history, historical documents involved. Yep. Uh, and, and it has, uh, it doesn't have an image on it, but it, it has a pattern of blood that's similar, at least similar, you'd have to say, to that uh, on, on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, but then when I, um, I, I started thinking about the date of 700 AD for the sudarium, and then I thought of where would the person who was doing the burial, and I tend to think that it was the Apostle John, because he was the only Apostle left at the foot of the cross. Mm. You know, they, you probably had Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in, in the tomb as well, if it was large enough. But uh, I think uh, uh, John, the Apostle John, would have had priority to actually do the burial. And so they'd bring the body in and lay it down on the back of the cloth. He'd then reach over and take the face cloth off, fold it or roll it up. It can be translated either way. And then he'd just absent-mindedly drop it. Now, most people are right-handed. Uh, and so you have the back shelf with the body on it. You have a, a left bench and you have a right bench. Right. Probably, probably. So, so that he would then drop it uh, on the right bench. Well, where would he drop her? Well, probably just even with his body. 
And so I looked at that location uh, and allowed a plus or minus 50 years on it. And in my document, I then highlighted in yellow that area of 700 AD plus or minus 50 years. And it would be right even with his body, exactly where you'd expect and in exactly in agreement with the dating of the Sidarium of Oviedo. And so that was my uh, fourth tie-in point uh, on the carbon dating. So I, I feel like all of this is on a fairly firm ground. Yeah, no, it's, it, it definitely seems that way. And and I was, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know, uh, for me, I always enjoy, you know, a really good, uh, well-documented and well-thought-through uh, process. And, and uh, you know, and I agree with you as well. You said something before, you know, you wrote uh, 12, a series of 12 papers, and each paper you get better and better as you're writing them because your thoughts and your, your logic becomes a lot clearer. And I noticed that as well when I was writing my book uh, uh, in one area, I was writing about how they took the body down and then how they carried it over to the, uh, over to the tomb. And what, what was interesting to me is that a lot of the writers on the shroud uh, felt that the shroud was used, the shroud cloth was used to carry the body from Golgotha over to the tomb. And uh, what was interesting to me is when I look at the image, there's no smear marks or blood on the image at all. Right. And so then uh, when, when you think about that, and just to kind of you know talk about how your logic then gets better and better the more times you think through something, then you realize that that, that assumption is wrong. Because if, there, if it was, there's no way that anybody could carry some a, a man of 170 pounds without it moving around and shifting and whatever and on some kind of a gurney or some kind of a you know, a, a, something holding it up. And um, uh, and so then, you know, it's, I, I, I see exactly what your point is. And then and then to your third your your last point about taking the three points, the three samples that were down near the foot and then using your MCNP calculation and then having it apply it with the sudarium cloth. That's uh, that's that's exactly the same kind of a uh, progression of logic that I think really makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. So th this concept of a vertically collimated radiation burst, I, I think, it explains the the image. Uh, it does a good job of explaining the image. It it ends up with a hypothesis that cons that's consistent with the evidence, and that's what you want. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. to a certain degree, yeah. the uh, a good hypothesis uh, should suggest uh, ways to test it. Yeah. And that's that's the paper that I'm writing now. In, yeah, so tell what, us about tell us about that paper because it sounds like there's some really interesting <laughs> things. It, what, you know, what, yes, well, it, it's a this this is going to be for the conference uh, in St. Louis in June uh, as a technical conference, uh, and basically what I'm saying there, uh, it, for example, is, is that there needs to be uh, kind of micro electrical testing of linen fibers uh, to to see if uh, an alternating current running through a linen fiber uh, at, at the correct frequency can cause discoloration just in the outer 2% of the radius of the fiber. It's that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and then all, another test would be <clears throat> to test ozone and other reactive gases that could be produced uh, in a static discharge. Uh, and expose them to a linen fiber to see if the, if that attack could take place from outside the fiber and discolor uh, just uh, two percent uh, of the uh, fiber. So it's that sort of thing. Yeah. So and uh, so, what's the name of that paper, and uh, what's kind of the uh, what's going to happen with that paper that you're talking about? Uh, it's going to be published in the February issue uh, of. Uh, materials evaluation which is the main journal of the american society for non-destructive testing and it's going to be coming out in the february issue which mm -hmm. should be coming up soon wow yeah well i'm definitely going to see if i can find it that's uh it sounds pretty interesting and i don't know it's just something that's for the geek in me and the engineer in me that i would <laughs> like to read now yes. i would want to I read one of your other papers and I thought it was also kind of fascinating where you went through 
I think it was six different hypotheses as to, you know, what could have happened and how it could have happened. And yeah, how could all of that energy either be put into the body or released from the body as it was disappearing? And uh, maybe talk a little bit about that one. Uh, well, yes, I'm just looking at one page here of, of that. Uh, and, you know, because there's a lot of people will say, uh, I just can't believe in, in the resurrection of Jesus because where did his body go? Things don't just disappear. So I went through seven different options here to consider them. The, the last one, uh, uh, what I couldn't really discuss that because it, it was kind of beyond uh, anything, any of our current physics or even extrapolation of our current physics. Mm. So that I just put that in as kind of a catch-all that can't further be discussed. Uh, but, uh, but for example, let me just run through these. The, the molecules in Jesus' body broke into their constituent atoms, which then passed through the shroud and into the walls of the tomb. I've heard that. Or, or number two, the atoms in Jesus' body disintegrated into their neutrons, protons, and electrons, which passed through the shroud and into the walls of the tomb. Heard that. Number three, the atoms in Jesus' body disintegrated with the entire mass of his body being converted into energy according to Einstein's theory, MC, M, E equals MC squared. The problem with that is that it would have released a thousand times the energy of the largest nuclear weapon ever, ever exploded, ever tested. And so that would have destroyed the shroud, the tomb, Jerusalem, and, and probably all of Israel. That never happened. <laughs> Number four, the atoms in Jesus' body disintegrated uh, with the entire mass being converted into neutrinos and antineutrinos, which would have penetrated through the shroud and through the walls of the tomb and through the earth without interacting. So you completely lose them. The problem with that and several other aspects of these other things is then, then how in the world does the body be recomposed uh, for the post-resurrection appearances. Do you have to regather all those right. neutrinos and, and anti-neutrinos from the far reaches of the, of the universe <laughs> to bring them back? Well, no. And then number five, the Jesus body was transported out of the shroud and, and the tomb into some other location in this physical universe by a wormhole. Now that's getting into kind of Star Trek uh, concepts. Uh, wormhole doesn't work here. Where is, uh, where is Mr. Spock when you need him? Yes, yes, I know. But number six, I think, is where you have, really have to come down and say, this, this is the best option uh, for how the body disappeared from within the shroud. Jesus' body disappeared from inside the shroud by a transition into an alternate dimensionality. That's at least an extrapolation of modern physics. Mm. Well, and that, and also, I mean, modern physics is now starting to figure some of those alternate dimensions out. That's for sure. And uh, but you know, I liked I liked that paper because each one of those hypotheses uh, and the way you describe them, and then the energy or the reconstitution of the body and what have you, you know, it just disproves this one. It disproves this one. It disproves this one. And I thought that was really well done. And and uh, you know, and I definitely appreciated that. I think the other thing that was uh, interesting as well, and uh, and we're, we'll we'll start to close here. But I thought one of the other papers that you had was interesting in that if the body disappears instantaneously, then that uh, means that the shroud would be sucked in by the vacuum that took over the the area where that body was. And I just and I was thinking about that, and I go, man, that is. That that is that's perfect. I, you know, it's just one of these things that, as you're thinking about, well, how could this have happened? Okay, so if it happened over, let's say, the body disappeared over 10 or 12 seconds, then the cloth would have fallen down slowly. If it disappeared within a millionth of a second, boom! Then all of a sudden, the, the material would have had to have been sucked into the middle somehow. Uh, and, yes, yes, and, and one uh, hypothesis for image formation says that as the cloth collapsed. Uh, into the radiation left behind by the body that, that the image would have formed. But the problem with that uh, is that if, it, if the body disappears rapidly, as, as you suggested, then the sides would be brought in and you'd right. end up with images of the sides on the shroud 
which uh, are not there. Yeah, so, and that and that's where I think your point about the the verticality of the image uh, generation mechanism is that it 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 has to be vertically you know vertically collimated. I think was your term, and um, and then to your other point as well in one of the papers is that neutrons are not. Uh, you know, there's no charge on them, so therefore they go in all random directions. So therefore, the uh, the image was probably not generated by them. It had to have been done by something that would be vertically columnated. And then to your point about the alternating current and the pluses and the minuses going down, so that you get an even kind of an image on the top and on the bottom uh, side of the of the shroud. Uh, yes, the neutrons are so penetrating that if they went through the cloth, creating an image that an, an image just as strong would be formed on the outside of the wrapped configuration and through mm. the thickness uh, as it was on the inside. And yeah. that's just contrary to the evidence. Yep, yep, yep. And I, uh, I, I don't know, it, it really was fascinating and I really, uh, uh, really appreciated that. You know, and now, of course, with your paper coming out uh, and looking at doing some future non-destructive testing, uh, I always think about the church kind of sitting there and saying, well, we're going to be kind of like Moses. We're going to wander. We're going to let those scientists wander around in the desert for 40 years before we give them another shot at doing the testing. And so we're going to be about 50 years now, maybe if we can do some more testing in 2025. So, yes. uh, you know, that that's kind of like, uh, you know, letting the <laughs> letting the scientists wander in the desert before they come back and actually get their hands again on the shroud. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry my, my image here of myself is not very good, be, uh, and, and that's because the uh, sun is going down and I'm losing my light here uh, at the little window in front of me. Yeah, no, that's all right. You're, you actually come out pretty good. and um, Yeah, it's actually nighttime where I am, but I definitely appreciate the time. Do you have any other thoughts or comments before we close that you'd like well, to make? Well, th this is uh, really, uh, it's a lot of fun working on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was working on uh, just in the nuclear industry for 38 years, but what I'm doing now is by far more significant and far more interesting. Uh, and uh, I, I think there, that uh, what we're showing here is that the Shroud of Turin really is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus. Uh, and if you just bear with me here for a thought, I'll, I'll wrap up the conclusion. So, so the question is, is this the authentic burial cloth of Jesus? Uh, and so you have to realize here that what we're the conclusion we're coming to is the image was formed by a, a burst of radiation from within the body uh, and, and this burst of radiation came from a dead body of a crucified man so you you then look through all the historical records that we have to find out who that could be what crucified body uh, dead crucified body could have emitted a burst of radiation to form the front and back image of itself on a piece of cloth when there is no other uh, image uh, of a body on a piece of cloth that has been formed uh, you know, naturally like, like this. Uh, and, and so the your conclusion is that the only possibility is, is that this image was formed by Jesus Christ in his resurrection in all of our historical records, that's the only option. So we're just forced there. You know, we, we don't have to assume it yep. to, to conclude it. We're forced to conclude it based upon the evidence. Now, I, I realize there are many different people that try and get out of the evidence. And well, I'm sorry about that, but this is what the evidence indicates. Well, and I absolutely, and um, and and it seems like, and uh, Joe Marino uh, uh, released a book on the carbon 40, 14 dating and all the politics, and and you know we think the politics between the Republicans and Democrats are strong. It's nothing when you get into religion, and then you get it on a global scale. And what he had in that, uh, what he's documented in in his book is just uh, just fascinating. And there's oh, yes. there so much, uh, you know. Uh, politics going on related to that carbon-14 testing that uh, it's unfortunate because it really did set back the testing and the scientific research on the shroud by uh, by the 40 years so yes but I, I think we've solved the carbon dating problem now and the yep. important the important point is that of the four things that we know to be true about carbon dating the assumption that the uh, shroud dates to 1260 
is only consistent with one out of those four items. So yep. that I would take, I would say the carbon dating of the shroud is one of the main evidences that it's authentic. <laughs> yeah, if, if your theories are right, and I and I like your theories, yes. uh, if they're right, then that's actually, you're right, it's actually positive proof. It's, it's positive evidence. It's not, yeah. not negative evidence at all. Right. right. Because in science, you have to explain everything, not just one out of four. Yeah. And the explanation that it dated to 1260 to 1390 is only consistent with one of the four things that we know to be true. Yep. 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 Well, listen, let me uh, end it right there. I really like your conclusion because that uh, I think that really does summarize a lot of what we talked about and a lot of the science as it as it has progressed over the last, well, last hundred years, I guess. And uh, but anyway, Bob, thank you so much. Uh, it's been awesome uh, talking with you and getting to know you and also understanding at the next level of detail your theories and hypotheses and and then uh, potential proof. And I do hope that in 2025, we are able to to carbon date the center of that shroud to 8,500. <laughs> well, the, you know, a, a sample taken by the patch on the right arm, which would be next to the wall, would date to about 4,500 AD. Yeah. yeah. And, and a piece uh, taken off uh, of next to the patch on the left arm would date to about 3,500 AD according to my calculations uh, well, and, and if and any so, of those and if yeah, any so of those you, tests, you, yeah. you, you need those two samples and that should be uh, easy i think to get and you remember in 2002 that they, they took a fully carbonated material from underneath those patches and put it into bottles which is just sitting not being used at all yep. Uh, yep. in the vault in turin and that material can make all the difference in the world in understanding the Shroud of Turin. And it should yep. be used for dating. Yeah, I and I, I think you're right. And um, and it would be interesting if that really does come out to be, you know, to 3000 AD or whatever it comes out to be. Man, oh man, that'll be that'll be groundbreaking. That'll absolutely- It, it would. Yeah, I, I think it's potentially more important than anything Albert Einstein yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. Well, you will have then debunked the debunkers uh, of this yes. meeting of the shroud. I always like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, anyway, thank you again, Bob. And uh, otherwise, please visit uh, shroudresearch.net for a lot more of Bob's papers and activities. I found them fascinating. Uh, they are an interesting read and and uh, really very helpful to understand what uh, may have happened to uh, to the Shroud of Turin. And uh, if you'd like to, his email is info at shroudresearch.net. Otherwise, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Thank you, Bob. Thank you.